Welcome to Word from the Herd, produced and brought to you by the Kimmel Foundation for Recovering Leadership. Welcome to Word from the Herd, and this is our second season, so welcome back. This is Thomas Hill, your host, and today I'm in the studio with Chris Brewster, who is the founder and currently the superintendent of the Santa Fe South School District now in Oklahoma City. Now, Chris has got an, uh, a really interesting background. His parents were in the mission field, and so in his bio, he says he was raised in five states and two countries. I'm assuming that's not all at the same time. I'm assuming he moved around. <laughs> that's right. But he did, you did graduate from high school in the Philippines and then came back to the U.S. in, in 87, got your um, further education here in the United States. And then um, after being in education a little bit, you kind of returned to the south side of OKC and opened the Santa Fe South High School, which was a public charter school. Started out with, you said, seven teachers and about 120 ninth graders. And today there are over, there are 3,600 plus students in pre-K through 12th grade, 321 faculty and staff spread across eight campuses. That's amazing. Um, and then on top of that, as if that wasn't enough to, to do, um, he and his wife, Christy, have four biological kids and have adopted four kids. And so you've got a handful and a houseful and a lot, don't you? We do. We, it's always a circus at the Brewster House, <laughs> for sure. Well, you know, uh, we, uh, we had six kids, all biological, and I felt like that was a circus at times. Mm-hmm. But um, I, who would you trade in? You know, I wouldn't, exactly. I wouldn't send any of them back. So I, you know, On occasion. Well, I momentarily. That, yeah. yeah, momentarily. But you'd want it back eventually. <laughs> Well, Chris, I always ask uh, our guests the same question, just kind of as an icebreaker. Um, tell us a little bit uh, about who your hero was when you were young. And if that's changed, maybe tell us about who your hero is now. Uh, I was reflecting on that um, not too long ago, actually. Uh, I think with some, um, some perspective, um, it, the heroes in my life are, are literally my parents. My, uh, my dad, as an Okie, uh, by birth from Bixby. Actually, he grew up in Oklahoma mostly. He was born in California. His uh, his dad was a high steel worker and uh, moved a lot, very transient. Also had a problem with alcohol. So my dad grew up in an abusive household and uh, had a really tough upbringing. Um, he and his uh, sister bounced around a lot, and then eventually his parents got divorced. But my daddy got um, got his life turned around when he when he became a follower of Jesus Christ when he was about 17 in Oklahoma at Falls Creek. And so I grew up hearing about this Falls Creek place. I grew up overseas. <laughs> I've never been to Falls Creek. And uh, years later, as a young youth pastor, I went my first time to Falls Creek. And all of a sudden, it all made sense to me. There was a, really quite an experience there. But my daddy came from a background where uh, alcohol had devastated his family. Uh, there wasn't a lot of nurturing in his family. Uh, wasn't a lot of success academically in his family. He and himself actually had uh, what at that time would have been an undiagnosed uh, learning disability and dyslexia. But my dad uh, is a tough man, and he made it through college, through his graduate work, and then spent his life in in service uh, overseas as a missionary. Um, I've always looked at my dad uh, as my hero because he's so tough, and he created a family tree. Um, because he was obedient to his calling and took the opportunities in front of him. So the things that he didn't have, all of his kids have. A solid family. He and my mom have been married 54 years. 
uh, or something like that. I think it's 54 now. And all of their kids have college educations and uh, a strong history of faith in our family. So dad, growing up, was my hero. Now, now I reflect on it as well. My mom is my hero as a professional educator. Um, I had the opportunity to be homeschooled and public school and private school and about every iteration of school you can imagine. Uh, but the best teacher I ever had uh, was my mom. I just didn't know it at the time, that she could manage uh, homeschooling, three of us in seven subject areas, and only occasionally have to send us down the hallway to the principal dad, uh, <laughs> who didn't mind using the Board of Education to correct any of our errant ways. And uh, But my mom's uh, ability to teach um, in different modalities and just relentlessly assuming that we could learn and uh, really has set a standard for what both learning and teaching was for me, and I appreciate that a great deal now. She's, she's one of my heroes. Oh, that's fantastic. And I picked up a couple of things there that I think are really significant, given kind of what we want to talk about today, which is how leaders provide opportunities for people to grow. Um, the first thing I, I picked up on is, you know, you said your dad, uh, you said he built a family tree. Uh, he provided you all what he didn't have and really set the stage for you all to be successful in life. Uh, through all the different things that he did, his nurturing and his support and, and belief in you. And then, you know, your mom being an educator, um, and I, I really found the words you chose interesting. You said she was relentless in her assumption, which is also belief, in her belief that you all would learn, that you all had greatness in you, and she just kept pouring into you and, and putting things into you. Uh, and, and that is so foundational to leadership. I mean, really, leadership is creating opportunities for people to become what they are and believing that people have that greatness in them and that we just have to help help them bring it out, help them find that. So that's a great transition to, to what you do. Um, you've been at Santa Fe now for more than 20 years, right? About 20 right, right years? Right around 20, yeah. So you now have kids from those first years who must be in their mid-30s and have gone on to, to do all the things that we do in life. And hopefully you've been able to see how those lives were impacted by the high school experience. And, and now you're, you know, you're seeing even, even more and more. Would love to hear some stories. I, I, you have to have some great stories about kids who really their life got pushed in a different direction, even redirected because they had an opportunity to be a part of Santa Fe South. Tell us about that. You know, I think uh, educators all have those stories where they can see, especially if they've been in the game long enough to see kids progress either from elementary or middle or high school. But my favorite stories uh, related to that question are those that have returned to the community to be educators with us. Um, I miscalculated a while back when I said that I thought 15% of our current staff were Santa Fe South graduates. It's actually a little bit larger number than that now, especially in my high school. And we have a whole host of our uh, teachers, support staff, and others who actually graduated from Santa Fe South without exception. They are tremendous educators. Um, they don't cut anybody any slack. Um, they come from the same background. They know the same families, the same community. And so their expectations are, as you mentioned, relentlessly high for their younger peers to, to be able to meet um, you know, their potential. Uh, the other aspect that I didn't anticipate as an educator being really fulfilling was the second generation of children coming into a school. So what we're seeing now is I actually have kids in my high school that were children, that are children of graduates from Santa Fe South, and certainly from pre-K on up. And what I found is that oftentimes these moms and dads will come up to me 
and they'll bring me their little one and say, you know, Mr. Brewster, uh, this is so-and-so. And she's really smart. She knew all of her colors and days of the week and Spanish and English before she even started preschool. And she knows her months. And I'll say, wow, that, that's impressive. You didn't even know those in high school. It was quite amazing. Mr. Brewster, that's not how it was. I said, well, yeah, it kind of was. And what I've noticed is that this second generation um, that is coming to our school has very high expectations for their kids because we had high expectations for them. So this generational benefit was something that I hadn't quite um, thought so much about. And our, our parents, who were our kids, are exceptionally supportive of the work that we do now, much more so in many cases than their own parents were, who just sort of got them there. Now they have very high expectations for the little ones that they bring to us. So that's been an incredible blessing. We've got lots of stories of young people that are in the military or police. We've got folks who are in science, who are physicians now, those that are um, we've got a graduate from MIT and some engineers, but I think my favorite stories are those about uh, my saints who've come back to be teachers in our schools. That's marvelous. You know, I find it interesting, you, you very, very specifically said that those teachers who have come back into the community, who basically have the experience that now the current students are having and that they come from the same backgrounds, have the same challenges and the things that are there in their lives, that you said they don't cut them any slack. You said they hold them to a high standard. So often I think that we misread that being easy on people is the way that we give them an opportunity to, to grow or that, that we give people opportunities by kind of handing them stuff. But that's not really what we're talking about. Actually, we need to challenge people. We need to hold people accountable. And you use the word high expectations several times in, in telling that story that uh, the the, the kids that have now graduated and are now raising their own families, um, through the experience with you, they learn to have high expectations for themselves, and now they have high expectations for others. And I think that's so important, um, no matter what environment, no matter what community we're in, as leaders, one of our responsibilities, yes, is to provide opportunities for people, but we can't do that at the expense of letting people give up on themselves or lower their own standards. We need to raise the standard, tell people, hey, you have it in you to do great, to do, you know, to do excellent work and to hold them, hold them to that standard. So that, that's fantastic. So I'm assuming that, you know, all of these things that you went through, because you had a very interesting life, those had a lot to do with shaping who you are. And the fact that you were uh, in a family where your father had, you know, had come out of an abusive family and that tends to shape families. And so tell us a little bit about uh, maybe a story or a time when when somebody really demonstrated to you or told you that they valued you, and what did that mean to you, and, and what impact did that have on your life? So I think you know one of the things that you pointed out earlier was this idea of high expectations being something that we frequently maybe discard when we're working with uh, under-resourced or abused populations. Um, I think that you must have high expectations. It's a sign of love but they have to be with high supports as well. People who give too many supports and no expectations, they ruin uh, the student. And the opposite can be true as well, where you have expectations that are way too high, but no supports, you ruin the student as well. So I grew up with you know, fantastically supportive parents who also had very high expectations. My coaches and teachers were the same way. So the model that I saw throughout my academic, my athletic background, through music, where I studied uh, at Oklahoma Baptist, very high expectations, but tremendously high supports as well. 
So when I got it right as a teacher, I was a choral music director and I was a coach wrestling and soccer and volleyball. Those were the cross country, those are the sports that I coached. When I got it right, it was that equal blend of both where the standard had been set high and the supports were equally high. There's really no excuse not to meet those. Um, I can think back to a particular coach of mine. His name is Coach Steve St. Clair. Coach St. Um, I hope he doesn't hear this, but he was he's not an attractive human being physically. He looks like he was carved out of granite by kind of a, a, a blind sculptor. I mean, he is a massive, massive man with a huge beard, hands the size of, you know, a grizzly bear. And he was my, my, my wrestling coach. And the fact that, that Saint had never actually wrestled made no difference to any of us on the team. Uh, we would do anything that Coach Saint would ask us to do. It was like almost a cult-like following for this man because he had us um, with that high expectations and high supports. He still does this. He's still active in working with young people today. And his uh, ability to get a bunch of scrawny missionary kids working in the most abysmally hot conditions you can imagine in Southeast Asia on a wrestling team was amazing to me. So Coach Saint was is an exemplar in my life of somebody who had crazy high expectations. And we just thought we could win. We thought we could beat anybody that we wrestled. We didn't know what we were doing, but we were tough. And his the results that he had year in and year out with those teams were very consistent. He would take whoever walked in the door and achieve really, really good results because of those two, two expectations he held. Wow. Okay. So we can't let that one, that one pass. We need to repeat that high support with high expectations and and say again what you said if you have high expectations but you don't get the support what what do you see happen there well you, that's that's cruelty right okay. you set a standard uh for your child or your employee or uh, the, the one you're mentoring or whatever your context is you set a standard that's high but you don't provide them a way to reach it and they are doomed to fail and it's a a disconnect in so many ways. It breaks their heart and their spirit and it's not productive for anybody. And the opposite is true when you make things so easy. You give uh, someone everything that they need but no expectations to use it. So they've got affluence or they've got food or they've got whatever, access, but they don't have any expectation or responsibility to use those things. So it, I think as leaders, coaches, teachers, whatever, when we get it right, it's, it's both of those things held simultaneously. So I don't typically like the word balance. I don't believe that there's a whole lot of balance in the world. Just ask the parents of a newborn, right? There's no, no balance in their life. There's probably a lot of days where your house doesn't feel very balanced, Chris. But, but that's a good one where, where we do need balance. We need to, to balance the support that we give with the expectations we have. Um, I know early in my career as a leader, I had high expectations for the people that I led, and I often didn't provide the support. I was a kind of a absent leader. I would say... You know, if I darken your door, it's because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. I assume you know how to do your job. And, and, and there is a, a level of professionalism that, that, that comes with a, with a position. You hire somebody, you, you expect that they have the education and a certain amount of experience. However, if, if our teams are going to function well and if we're going to achieve really phenomenal results, then leaders need to be in there with their sleeves rolled up, helping and, and supporting and making sure that the, the necessary resources and training, you may find that that somebody isn't trained as well as they need to be trained in an area and leaving them to just kind of sink or swim is really not beneficial to the organization. So that, that is a fantastic story. I really, really appreciate you bringing that up. Um, 
you are very invested in community transformation. Um, you're not just running a school. You're not just an educator. You're involved in the communities that you're in. And, and you haven't talked much about that yet, but I'm, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right here. Because um, you, you've said many times you believe community transformation is key to success in the classroom. Tell us a little bit about that. And then if you can, how can corporate leaders apply that? And how can those of us who lead organizations that want to be supportive and be part of the communities that we live and work in, how can we be a part of that? I think one of the most compelling things that you've mentioned today is the, the core belief of the foundation uh, in the intrinsic value of all people. So it's this idea that we're not valued by how high we can jump or how much money we have in our account or any other of you know, those sort of markers that we as humans ascertain somebody else's value by, but that we as humans are literally infinitely valuable because we're humans. There's not a, an amount you can place on the value. If you begin with that as your starting point, you have to look at an underserved community like South Oklahoma City and say, we've missed the boat. For decades, uh, children in those communities have not been able to thrive. And if one of our core jobs as a society is to ensure that our children survive and thrive according to their potential, we're not doing a good job in our community. And so the passion we have in our school, and as do many educators, is to see um, children thrive, to flourish, um, determining that maybe they come with us, to us with their own sort of innate abilities, and our job is to not sort of form them into something, but to allow them to, to prosper into what they've been designed to be. Um, as a result, we've got a group of educators that are phenomenal. They believe wholeheartedly in the ability and opportunity of our kids in our part of, part of the city. We ask questions like, what if Oklahoma City were the best place in the country to raise a child? What would that look like? What would it mean for businesses and churches and local government if the lens through which you viewed all of your grown-up decisions were asked, uh, were this, is it good for the kids? Is it really a good thing for the children that we legalize X or that we promote X or that we buy X. When you begin to think about it in that way, it really does, for me, become a really strong way to focus a decision-making um, group or, or idea around something. So I would ask people in business to have the same type of uh, laser-like focus on what their outcomes are, but their effect on the broader community. For us, you transform the community, business thrives. I need businesses to be successful. We need great thriving businesses in Oklahoma City. We need powerful, transformative churches in Oklahoma City. We need a tremendous health care system in Oklahoma City. We need great infrastructure. If these things are in place, which is good for kids, everybody prospers as well. Um, the idea that um, we don't take good care of our children is something that most people don't want to think about. Uh, but the empirical data is pretty clear to us in Oklahoma that we've not done a good job with the little little ones in our group are the least of these. Um, and I would, I would say that most of the folks that do the work that I do have really become quite focused around that idea. That's, that's tragic. And, you know, there are a number of statistics. You can look them up. And the problem isn't that we don't know what's going on. The problem is, is that we're not putting the effort behind fixing it, I think. And, mm -hmm. and um, so a couple of things there that, that really stood out to me. One, um, you, you, you basically said we need all the components of a community to be healthy and thriving. Um, 
all working together or none of us are really going to be able to thrive or, or have our best lives where I, I say all the time to, to my people, I say, as leaders, we can't experience our best life if the people that we lead aren't experiencing theirs. And that's a community statement. It's a statement that one person, one organization, one component of society can't really be the best it can be if it's surrounded by components of society that aren't doing well. We, we, it's in all of our best interest for everything to work well. And as leaders, as business leaders, even if we don't, and, and it's a shame if we don't, but even if we don't feel some moral obligation to the communities that we live and work in, it's actually a good business decision mm-hmm. to support the community development and community transformation. Because as you said, we need all of those things to be good. Um, I need to employ people. If Oklahoma City isn't a good place to raise a family, if it isn't, a, if we don't have good schools, if we don't have good health care, then people don't want to live here. They won't want to work here. And the people who will stay here are typically the ones who are trapped or the ones who don't have options. And we don't really want to be in that situation where it's the people who can't do something else. Uh, so that that's fantastic. Love that. Um, want to ask you real quickly um, if if you had if you could gather all of the business leaders in Oklahoma City into a room and you had you you could just say one thing to them you just had a minute of their time what would you say or what would you ask them for I think I would ask them to think about the things that we're already addressing uh, the the communal responsibility for the health of our city is something that I don't hear discussed nearly often enough in the boardrooms and in the meeting minutes. I think if we are intentional about asking the questions that we're that we're sort of philosophizing about now, but we make them a practical part of our day to day work, and that might be a business who becomes deeply engaged in ensuring that the public system that educates the children is held accountable and does a good job. Um, in many cases, we've got a sort of this outflow of those who can make a difference where they take their children and their influence to public schools that are outside of the areas that they work or even to private schools and that lets people off the hook you know we need to hold one another accountable and i would say to our uh, to our business leaders that until we can say collectively that the children are thriving in our city we've all got work to do and just because it's not our fault doesn't mean it's not our responsibility and it doesn't take much for us to to engage in some really deep and meaningful ways that, that fulfill us as well. I've talked to a lot of businessmen and women, frankly, who are looking for genuine meaning in their life. And those that have found it have found a way to marry their business acumen and success with the success of others in their community as well. That's fantastic. You said something there that, that I don't hear often enough um, and we need to hear more, and that is that Responsive, responsibility doesn't equal fault. Uh, we don't have to be the one who caused a problem uh, to be responsible for fixing it. And, and that's something that, that, you know, if more people would just take a hold of that concept and say, hey, look, you know, because I, I hear people say all the time, you know, I'm not responsible for racism or, you know, the silly things people say, well, my family doesn't own slaves. Well, yeah, of course they don't. But that doesn't mean that as, as human beings that we're not responsible for one another, that we shouldn't be taking care of one another and elevating everyone. So I really appreciate you saying that. That's right. Okay, last question. Um, kind of like the, the one I just gave you, but in a different audience. If, if you had an opportunity to speak to a group of emerging leaders, give me one piece of advice that you'd give a, an emerging leader. 
Well, I think that, that uh, leaders are really good about understanding the concepts behind being a good leader. What I don't see as often is, uh, is application of that knowledge. And the thing that I would say that would be most helpful in most cases is to find somebody you can, my dad's words, glom onto that is, uh, has really proven who they are by what they do. Um, and then find somebody that you can mentor as well. I mean, those types of relationships for me have proven to be the most uh, rich opportunities for me to grow, to contribute, uh, to replicate. Um, so I would, talk to, I would talk to leaders and say, don't just talk about having somebody you mentor and somebody that you work with, but really do it. You know, put that on your calendar. Right? Make sure that you're sitting down with these people every single week and that relational capital is genuinely built. Um, if you don't have relational capital, you don't have, you don't have any impact. And so being able to do that in, in some real ways, it also keeps leaders from being, being lonely and isolated. If we've got genuine friends on sort of both ends of the experience spectrum that we can pour into and be taken care of, and it makes life a lot more fulfilling to have that. Oh, that's fantastic. And, and you walked that, you walked that talk out at Santa Fe. I understand you have both um, staff, student mentoring, you, um, you hook every one of your high school students up with a, with a staff person who's kind of watching out for them. And then you've also set up peer-to-peer mentoring for older students to be kind of mentoring and helping along the younger students, which I think is fantastic. And that's something that works equally well in the, in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I totally agree with you. I love that. Well, Chris, it's been a lot of fun talking to you. I feel like we could talk for two hours and, and you would keep having wonderful things to say. And so I really appreciate you coming along today and, and being with us. Just thanks a lot for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for taking the time to visit with me. Well, this has been Word from the Herd, and we really appreciate you spending a little bit of time with us today and hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on Word from the Herd, a production of the Kimmel Foundation. For more information about the Kimmel Foundation, visit us at thekimmelfoundation.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at The Kimmel FDN. Please share this podcast and join us again next week for another Word from the Herd.